0: hello thank you um, thank you uh, Skylight Books for having me and thank you all for coming out to this reading um, and uh, yeah so this is not about me <laughs> um, <laughs> seems to be at the forefront of everyone's mind um, so just keep that in mind Um <clears throat> But so if he, yeah, it's about a woman who's twenty-six year old, twenty-six years old, and she's a virgin, and she um, is kind of obsessed with uh, losing it. And uh, she goes, she ends up moving in with her aunt who is fifty-eight, and she finds out that her aunt is a virgin too. So that just uh, really freaks her out, and uh, so she wants to try to figure out why that is and how that could happen to someone while trying to lose her virginity. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to start from the very beginning and then just read a few passages, and I hope they won't be too choppy. This is my first time reading from this book out loud. Um, So chapter one. I sat at my desk and stared at a calendar with a bunch of dancing tamales on it and played with a little piece of paper and thought about the fact that I was 26 and still a virgin. There was that, and then there was the fact that I couldn't stop thinking about it. Chelsea Maitland, she was my first friend to lose her virginity. She was 15. She told me about it one afternoon on her parents' remodeled back deck after school. The railings were made of a bright white vinyl material that hurt my eyes. It was when she'd gone to visit her sister at college, she said. They'd gone to a frat party, and there was a guy there who had been a counselor at a summer camp she'd gone to. She'd always had a crush on him. And they ended up getting drunk and walking to a lake together, and one thing led to another. How did it feel, I asked. I focused on a laid-back ceramic frog with an outdoor thermometer in it. We lived in San Antonio, that's where I grew up, and fixtures like this were common. I couldn't say, said Chelsea, with a little smile, her face folded and smug. Like she was in possession of a secret I couldn't possibly fathom, and she had to crowd around it and protect it. Chelsea Maitland, of all people. We'd been friends for almost eight years, since we were kids, but the implication beneath our friendship had always been that I was the special one, that I would always be the one to get the thing. The phone on my desk rang. It was my boss. Hi, Julia, she said. Can you meet me for a quick chat? Sorry, are you in the middle of anything? Oh, no, no, I said. And then before I could stop myself, I was just staring at a calendar with tamales on it that someone left here, I think. It's not mine. There was a pause. See you in 10? Sure, I said. I shoved the calendar into a desk drawer, desk drawer and brushed off I shoved the calendar into a drawer and brushed off my desk and picked up and stared into my pen jar and put it back and just kept sitting there like that. Then there was Heidi Beasley. We all found out at a sleepover when we were 16 on a rare re- weekend that I wasn't away to swim meet that she had lost her virginity. What was it about her, I thought later, curled in my sleeping bag, staring at a wooden sign that read Heidi's Bistro in their finished basement. I'd known her forever too. I remember one afternoon in the activity room of a church. This was when my parents were going through their Christian phase. She had cried and said she was trying to. She had cried because she was trying to thread a bunch of jelly beans into a necklace and they'd fallen apart. And now her face was always soft with daydreams, and she would uh, thoughtfully chew on the end of a lock of hair and stare into the distance. I'm 16. I thought at the time, it wouldn't be long before it was my turn. Danielle Crenshaw. She was on my high school swim team, and so we were all. We were so we were on a. So we were at a lot of meets together. One afternoon, we're all lingering, taking longer than usual. She's in purple leggings and a big floppy sweater, and she's doing her favorite thing, which is to show off her sex moves via a little hip-hop dance. You gotta get down on it, she said, rolling her chest forward and squatting. You gotta get down on it. Everyone shrieked with laughter, (laughs) including me. But really, I was marveling at her authority with the subject matter, to have gotten down on it so many times that you could confidently riff on it like that. (laughs) Without being afraid, anyone would doubt your experience. Skipping ahead a little. Senior year, there was Kimmy Fitzgerald. People liked Kimmy because she was nice to everyone. She always wore a winter coat that she allowed her grandmother to sew little bits of fabric into so that it made a kind of hideous patchwork. And she somehow got away with this due to a grave, dreamy manner that repelled criticism because you could tell on some innate level that she wouldn't care what anyone said. One night, a group of us girls were at an all-night Greek diner that people from our high school went to. We were talking and picking at waffles and drinking coffee. At the booth next to us was a, was a group of boys from another school being loud and stealing looks at us. We made a show of ignoring them. One was wearing a boxy black button-down shirt like a waiter would wear and had greasy blonde hair and a broad face with wire glasses that were too small. On first glance, he looked pinched and insolent, like a bully. But then when we were leaving the diner out in the parking lot, this same guy came up to us. His friends were hanging back, embarrassed, as he got down on one knee and presented to Kimmy a flower he had made out of a paper placemat. A rose for a rose, lady, he said. We all laughed in a mean, choppy way and rolled our eyes, although you could see in that gesture where he was putting everything to the front. You could see the way he was brave and open-hearted, even though he wasn't handsome or wearing the right clothes. Any one of us would have ignored him, but Kimmy didn't. She saw the happiness that was leaping out at her, and she took it. She stepped forward and, to everyone's surprise, said, Why, thank you. Okay, now I'm skipping forward again. And this is when Julia is at her aunt's house and she's uh, just pondering her predicament like very intensely. When was the last time you wanted something? Wanted it so badly that the very grip of your wanting seemed to prevent you from actually getting it because you were throwing things off with your need, holding too hard, jarring things out of joint my virginity composed about 99% of my thought traffic I concentrated on it trying to drill it down to its powder its particle elements trying to recategorize it impose different narratives on why this had happened I knew the way it worked too that certain attitudes would attract certain things I knew that if you ignored something stepped away from it allowed yourself to breathe it would come to you it was like when I worked at the box office at San Antonio Stage one summer and I had to open the wonky combination lock to the safe and sometimes the harder I tried the more stuck it would get But if I gave it a moment, allowed myself to float away, I had that necessary confidence, finesse. Whatever that thing is that certain dim athletes and movie stars have, that insouciance that causes all the cogs in your universe to sink, gives you easy passage. The lock would click. And that was the problem. To want something so badly was to jam yourself into the wrong places, gum up the works, send clanging vibrations into the cosmos. But how can you step back and affect nonchalance? When I really wanted to torture myself, I'd think of Eddie Avilas. He was the guy who, in high school, had most closely resembled someone you could call my boyfriend. And what really stuck with me about it, thinking back, was his general optimism and knee-jerk decency, how I hadn't realized what a nice person he was. I would remember the time he squeezed each of my fingertips on the dusty blue tarp in the middle of the track field, his tiny kitchen and terrifying father his strange jeans, the beat-up neon yellow lunch satchel he would always bring to school. It was only in hindsight that I realized Eddie was extremely poor, how he would feel like a pile of firewood, all jangly and warm, lying on top of me when we were watching a movie in my basement. There was a time where we we were in his small sunlit kitchen with our homework spread out in front of us on the table. We reached a kind of lull, a resting point in the conversation, and he does this thing. I sort of see it from the corner of my eye and then look over. And through some glint of intuition, I know that he wants me to see as he tosses his pen up into a flip and then expertly catches it. He looks at me with eyes as hopeful and pliable as a baby bird's. But there's also a gleam of pride there. This all happened very quickly, but so much occurred to me in that moment, that he'd been practicing this move and waiting for a chance to perform it when it would seem most offhand and casual. Like he just had this facility with, this wor- with the world, this capability that he wanted me to see. And, this, and in this moment, he needed my approval so much that it was embarrassing. And instead of doing what I should have done, which was to just give him that by some flicker of awe or grin of admiration, I ignored him. And he saw me deciding to ignore him. And I guess you could say that it wasn't a big deal, but a part of me knew that it was in these small transactions that kindness can be most felling, that unkindness can be most felling, and I would have given anything to go back. But that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part happened a few months later in a hotel pool in Corpus Christi. Because a few of our friends were going, Eddie and I got roped into a beach trip spearheaded by this Christian organization that was always sponsoring events at our high school. Despite their religious underpinnings, we had all heard that the beach trip was basically a free-for-all. It was just—it one of a few weekends that I didn't have a swim meet, so we signed up. When we got there, however... It wasn't long before I figured out that this was going to be a super-structured weekend of indoctrination. The second night, we were all corralled into a conference room or ballroom-type area at the hotel we were staying and made to watch a Christian punk band play against a bunch of depressingly stacked chairs. Eddie and I managed to sneak out. We ran through the carpeted hallways. We made out against the empty breakfast buffet and the deserted dining room. We found a sitting area centered around a display of mystery novels and a small tree in a geometric pot. "'Hopped up on the warm hotel air and the sense of escape, "'we decided to find the roof. "'Instead, we found the pool. "'It was deserted, bright, humid, and sultry, "'with a shine-like sense of stillness "'and fake, spiky trees in each corner. "'We tested the water, and it was warm. "'We stripped down to our underwear and climbed in. "'Eddie got out, sculpted his hair into a wet mohawk, "'and cannonballed. "'We breathed into each other's mouths underwater.' At a certain point, we were kissing against the sides, sitting on an underwater outcropping like a stair or ledge. Eddie pulled back and said to me, "'Do you want to?' He said it without any pressure, as if this was just a one-time thing, a toss-off, the perfect crest to our little escape and not something we'd slowly, languidly been building toward. He said it with warmth and a sense of adventure." I spent a lot of time thinking back and trying to trace the exact pathways of logic or reasoning that led me to, after considering it for a few humid seconds, coyly decline. It's not like I didn't want to. We had been slowly kissing for a while. It could have been that something about the cold lapping of the water, a less comfortable temperature than it had been before, along with a smudged pelican fixture that seemed to be staring at us from the wall, combined to tip the atmosphere just enough the wrong way. It could have been that the stampeding intimacy of not only that moment, but the whole half hour before was just too much, and I felt like I just needed a second. But what I think it really was, because I was on the knife's edge, it really could have gone either way, was that I figured this was just the tip of the iceberg, that this was surely the beginning of many similar escapades, that I could afford to decline, if only to make the next proposition all, the, all the more delicious. How could I have known how wrong I was? So I told him, not tonight, and pushed back, swimming away. It didn't seem like a big deal at the time. Eddie smiled at me quizzically, and we hung out for a little longer and then got out, but things never culminated for us in the same way again. I kept assuming they would, but I think he thought he had been too pushy, and I was too shy to bring it up. It was as if the moment kicked off a series of misunderstandings that caused us to fall slightly out of step. He went away from the summer, and by the time he got back, things had ramped up for me swimming-wise. I hardly had any free time, and that was that. I began to think of that moment when I pushed away from him and swam to the other side of the pool as being where my fate changed where I branched off and started living a parallel life that wasn't supposed to be in the other life having lost my virginity at a young age in a hotel pool I'm sexed and supple and swanning through a series of relationships through life the hang up of losing my virginity would never have impeded me it would never have started to worry me only slightly at first but then more and more as my friends each lost theirs and I got older and it seemed that I had lost some beat some essential rhythm it would never have been something that started to curdle inside me that I started to think about all the time I'm a 24-year-old virgin, I'd think, as I hit my hip on a gate and sneezed at the same time. I'm a 25-year-old virgin, staring at the tiles of a mural on a city street. I'm a 26-year-old virgin, catching my reflection in a car window, untouched, like a flower suffocating in its own air, like something pickling in its own juices, something that badly needed to be turned inside out, banged right. I thought, the further... Down this path I go the more freakish I'll become the stranger of a species I'll be curling with my own horrible weird hair it was time to jam the lock and force it because I didn't have time to step back and meditate my way onto onto the right path I needed to make a plan for the summer a a surefire strategy I had to shed whatever preconception I had before about how it was all going to be okay and then one more passage Um, and so this is after she finds out about her aunt who, uh, you know, she finds out she, her aunt is a virgin. And so she kind of starts studying her like she's a specimen just to sort of keep track of all her traits and, um, and just to try to get insight into how this could have happened to someone. So this is her sort of tallying um, stuff about her aunt. Um, <laughs> She had a kind of domestic finesse that allowed her to do little old-fashioned things well. Make preserves and then label the jars with pleasing cursive, tie perfect bows, big rustic looking scones without consulting a recipe. She often had lipstick on her teeth and had a habit of shaking her wrist to get her watch to sit right. These were some of the things I noticed about Aunt Viv. She hummed beautifully when lost in thought, when gardening or absentmindedly putting things away. She pressed firmly into paper when she wrote and had a disarmingly legible signature. She was plump but not slovenly and had a way of seeming clean and slapped fresh all the time, as if she had just stepped out of the shower. It might have had something to do with her complexion, which blushed blushed easily. Sometimes when entering a room, she would cast a cool, queenly gaze around it. And if you didn't know better, you could be forgiven for thinking that she had an edge of snobbishness to her. I would would remember that day at Alice's party and how she was holding court with her friends, like the popular one at a girl's school, and how imperious she looked. She read with all the sensuality and absorption of a preteen girl, stocking-footed, sliding down the sofa, completely immersed, her hand foraging on the plate of cheese and crackers next to her like something with a life of its own. She liked gardening and yanking and patting things down, and you could tell she had grit, like the kind of person who would not freak out on a ship in some survival situation. The kind of person who would sit quietly and watch, taking stock, and only show the chain mail beneath her veneer when an emergency required it. She was a survivor, Aunt Viv. That, I felt, was true. Even if sometimes when she laughed, it was like the tinkling of simple, pretty light. She looked more exhausted than a World War One soldier when she got home from work. I watched her once from the top of the stairs when she couldn't see me. She dropped her bag in place and stared at herself in the hallway mirror. She yanked the little scarf off her neck and hung it on a brass hook, shrugged off her linen blazer and hung that up too. So she was just wearing a white shirt, a circle at the collar revealing her red chest, pulled her earrings off. Things she liked doing included letting her included letting her face go all soft when listening to music, clapping her hands to rid them of flower, abruptly changing the radio station, ending a conversation with a quick look away from you, dismissing you, always in the process of dismissal. The hair tie she yanked off her head, the rings she hurriedly swiveled off her fingers, shaking her head to banish an unwanted thought, cleaning out the dirt from under her fingernails with efficient scrapes, shucking away layers to be free, all part of some fastidious ongoing process, shucking, stripping, cleaning, in preparation for some never-reached point. And then sometimes she would look into the distance with a bewildered expression, and my heart would break a little, and I wouldn't know why. She read everything and knew a lot. It would shoot up now and then like a spit of lava and you would get a sense of the craggy knowledge beneath Old Dick Crookback, she said one afternoon when she got home from work and encountered me sitting on the front porch reading a book I'd found about Richard III What? I said That's what they called him, she said because of his scoliosis She looked sad He was misunderstood Such responsibility for an 11-year-old She walked into the house Once when I came home from work, she was in the garden and called me over and took my wrist and pressed something into my hand. It was an arrowhead. See, she said, it was black and pointed and hard as all get out. I knew that in bed she would be frank and jubilant, if she ever had the chance. She would let her hair down next to a campfire. She would squat in the mornings outside the tent to make coffee. She would look at a lover across a campfire with all kinds of mischievous understanding. She would be playful with a wolf mother protectiveness and also a lot of fun. I could see all of these things about her, or so it seemed, and yet none of them told me anything, said anything about why... She was in the state she was in. Why she had, hadn't ever been with a man. A more womanly woman never seemed to have existed. And you would agree too if you saw her in one of her freshly laundered linen shirts, her chest heaving as she dug for something in the garden, looking up and wiping the sweat from her brow with a gloved wrist, tying her hair up with all this elegant authority. I could picture her waving to someone, a person she loved in the distance, her alloy of grit and hope shining and shining. That's it. Thank you. Um, so we can do a, a Q&A, a short Q&A, if anybody has any questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes? <laughs> uh, uh, what was the process like? Do you writing this book? Um, well, this one took about two years, and it was... Uh, and then there was about probably five or six months when I wasn't working on it but um, there wasn't anything too distinctive about it it just was like a lot of writing and rewriting and tightening and then shucking away stuff that wasn't working and um, I, it started in third person at one point and then I realized it needed to go to first person um, n- nothing too like different than I think any normal writer's process just a lot of hard work and self-loathing <laughs> Um, but yeah. Nick. <laughs> i Nick. Uh, I'm a writer and author of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. two years ago. I started it two years ago. started it two years ago? No, wait. Like, like sold it about a year and a half ago so started it probably three years ago Uh, it's about a 26 year old yeah I'm just trying to do the math how old are you? 36 36. you're such a canny reader (laughs) yes (laughs) the piercing questions Um, that's all okay (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for attending this reading. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you said it's not about you, but is it based on or inspired by anyone, or a combination of? It's sort of inspired. So I have um, an aunt who uh, is not a virgin, but she uh, she got married um, pretty young and then got divorced about a year and a half after she got married and then since then since the age of probably like 25 she just has never been with anybody and um, it's just kind of this big mystery in our family because she's wonderful in every way and um, and and attractive and smart and funny and, and everything like she would makes such a great companion and I don't it, it doesn't seem like it's this thing where like she's secretly it's like a choice that she secretly doesn't want to meet anybody or that she's secretly gay it, it just I don't think it is any of that stuff um, and she and she does seem to bear a lot of loneliness and so it's just this been it's been this um, mystery and source of sadness in our family for a long time and to I just I just kind of wanted to explore that like what you know, it was my way of exploring that question. Like, how did this happen to to Melanie? Is it the worst thing in the world? I mean, it's funny because uh, I feel like I shouldn't be so specific about who it is. Um, because I told her I wouldn't. Um, but I feel like this isn't like a radio interview. So, who cares? Um, but... Um, But, yeah, so uh, it was my way of just kind of trying to answer that question because I just love her so much, and I feel like it's just so unfair that she just never met anybody. And maybe she still will. You know, she's 58. It's not like, you know, she's (laughs) Um, still got a few decades maybe of uh, (laughs) decrepit um, life to continue. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) But um, she could still meet someone anyway so it was like it's loosely based on her I mean it's actually not really based on her it's, but it's based the, the, the character of Aunt Viv is nothing like her but it's based on the question and I just thought it would be interesting um, to have someone who was sort of just starting to really reckon with the question of if they were you know like when, they, when am I going to meet someone and you know um is it ever going to happen you know and then have her confronted with like her worst case scenario like yes it can happen that you don't meet anybody it's not like a romantic comedy you know like people do end up alone sometimes and so that's that was the sort of uh, broth from which this book arose (laughs) Um, yeah any other questions? Yes. Is this your first book that you've written? This is my second book. Second book. Yeah, um, my first book is called *The Patterns of Paper Monsters*. Yeah. As a writer, what did you learn about yourself after finishing this? Um, I think I learned that it. Well, I guess it. it felt good to do a, to finish a second one because then it was like, okay, the first one wasn't just like a fluke, you know, um, and. Uh, so it, it, I, I think it made me feel more like a real novelist, you know, like, oh, I actually can do this. I've done it twice now. And so you just, you know, I, I kind of, now I think I have more of a sense of what it takes exactly, you know, and all of the trial and error and fits and starts and um, ups and downs along the way. Um, so I, I think it made me feel more like a real writer to have written two novels. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. And we hope to see you soon.